Well, let me pray as we get started. Father God, I pray that we would um, that we would be able to hear you today, that you would open our eyes and our ears and give us hearts that understand. Empower us by your spirit and help us to follow Jesus. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, I got married in 2006, so the mid-aughts. And uh, one of the things that my, life, my wife and I love to do in the mid-aughts, we still love to do this, is to take walks. Uh, and we would, we would go, we lived in a condo at the time, and we would walk around our neighborhood and uh, talk about how many kids we're going to have and what life is going to be like and all of this sort of stuff. But very early in our marriage, we ran into a problem, and this is the fact that uh, we would leave our house, and I was ready for a walk of like, oh yeah, we're strolling around the neighborhood. This is my normal walking pace that you are watching right now. Uh, And my wife would leave, and she'd say, I'm going to get my heart rate up. This is going to be fun. Let's go. Let's walk together. Uh, and so very early, uh, we'd take a walk, and like she'd be like, Gabe, let's, let's go faster. And I'd be like, Brooke, hang on, let's slow down a little bit. And I remember her uh, inviting me sometimes to take a walk, and like, Gabe, you want to take a walk? And I'd be like, hang on, hang on. What sort of walk are we going to take? Like, are we going to enjoy this walk, or are you going to torture me for the next half an hour while I try to hold a conversation? That sort of thing. And she'd be like, no, and she'd say, we're walking at normal pace. And I'd be like, yeah, normal pace is sprinting, that sort of thing. If you learn nothing else over the next half an hour, I hope you learn my pace is the right walking pace. (laughs) (laughs) So I said we got married in 2006. Uh, I even look back at that time. Uh, 17 years, coming up on 17 years ago, uh, and I think how fast and how much the pace of life has increased over the past 15, 17 years. And some of that is my own personal life, like we've got kids now and just a lot more going on in our lives. But some of that, I think, is true for all of us, that the pace of life has increased. In 2006, all of our phones had like touch buttons on them, if you remember, or some people were really cool and had Blackberries that had like the whole alphabet keyboard on their phone, that sort of thing. Nobody had smartphones at the time. I remember a friend telling us, hey, one day you're going to be able to watch movies on your phone. And Brooke and I looked at each other like, what? That's crazy. Movies on your, like, it'll be all pixelated. Who would want to watch that? Um, And so uh, our phones, uh, Facebook didn't really exist. You may have had a MySpace page back in the mid-aughts, that sort of thing. I see a few people nodding their heads. Uh, Then Facebook came and Twitter and Instagram and all the other Snap tweet things that are happening now. Um, And 
uh, and now I'm on my phone and I've got my email on my phone and all this stuff. And so at any moment of my life and my phone can ding and alert me of all sorts of things, like it's supposed to be this great convenience and it just speeds life up more and more. And I think we've all felt this in some ways. And a couple medical doctors have come up with a term called hurry sickness. And this idea of hurry sickness is the fact that, A, you're always in a hurry. And so some of the symptoms of hurry sickness, which, you know, medical doctors, they're like, it affects your heart or something like that. But um, uh, hurry sickness is uh, when there are small delays, you get overly irritated. Leaving my neighborhood the way we normally leave our neighborhood, there's about three stoplights and the city of Colorado Springs is completely unable to time these stoplights so that you can drive through all three. In fact, I think they are actively trying to make a stop at every single stop. I think it's like a conspiracy with, uh, I don't know, gas, gasoline to get us to waste more gas or something's going on here. But uh, we're always stuck at these three stoplights as we leave our neighborhood and it just drives me crazy. It makes like I leave my neighborhood and I'm instantly irritable. Hurry sickness. That uh, People talk about that, these medical doctors as they coin this term. And this like, oh, there's a small delay. I'm so frustrated at that. Another symptom of hurry sickness is multitasking. And I'm not talking about like vacuuming or doing the dishes and listening to a podcast. Like that's, that's yeah, that, that's great. Multitasking to me happens. I'm on a lot of Zoom calls for work. And it's like, oh, this isn't as interesting. I've got uh, 400 emails I need to answer. I'm just going to answer an email here while the Zoom call happens. Unsurprisingly, I'm not multitasking. I'm just not listening to the Zoom call. And what happens inevitably is I get taken back to fifth grade, if you remember, when your mind is daydreaming and then the teacher calls on you, like, hey, what do you think about that? This happens to me now in Zoom calls when I'm, I'm doing some emails and they're like, Gabe, what do you think about this idea? And I'm like, oh, uh, good, yes, let's do that idea multitasking, irritable when there's a delay. There's a sense of urgency. Like as you go through your days, you're like, okay, we got to get this thing done, this thing done. Let's move, let's move. Um, you've got, you're constantly running a to-do list in your head. If anybody's like this, like me of, okay, what's my to-do list or actually have a to-do list. And then if you're like me, sometimes you do stuff that's not on the to-do list and you're like, oh, that's not on my to-do list. I'm going to write it down and check it off. Like, let's go. I need to prove how productive I am. All of these sorts of things. And there's this pervasive sense of kind of hurry in my life. It's not always front and center, but it's always on the back burner of, oh, I can be doing a little more or need to be moving a little faster. And hurry, of course, it actually doesn't help anything. No one says, oh, wow, uh, you made this wonderful, uh, you know, whatever it is, this wonderful piece of writing or this wonderful music or uh, you, this wonderful project. Well, I was in a hurry. That's how I got it to be so great. No one has ever said that. Hurrying does not help us as we move through our lives and getting to the end of our life. We're not in a hurry to get there, are we? 
I think hurry is tied with other words like anxiety. When we hurry through life, it makes us anxious about things. It's tied with words like distraction. I know when I'm hurried through life, uh, just the next shiny thing that pops up is like, oh, I need to go pay attention to this. Oh, I need to pay attention to this. And just go from thing to thing. And the pastor, John Ortberg, said that hurry is not only a disordered schedule as you jump from thing to thing, but hurry is a disordered heart. Always trying to produce. Always trying to get more done. I know for myself, when I think of hurry, it it actually comes from a place of fear. It comes from a place of fear of saying, if I, like at work, if I get enough done, people are going to like me. And then I'll be okay. Or if I get enough done, I'm going to show my significance. And then I'll be okay. If I can just hurry through these things. And then I'm looking to other people and worried if they will like me or not. On this past Monday, I was, I've been working on this talk uh, and I was flying to Dallas uh, for an overnight trip. And um, I, I was leaving at midday. And so uh, you can imagine what my morning looked like. I had to pack. I had to answer 400 emails. Um, I was like, okay, I'm going to get all this done. You know, oh, clothes aren't clean, all this stuff. A little chaotic Monday morning, uh, coming in hard from the weekend. And my wife was out with my daughter running, some, running around and uh, she called, and I'm on email 348 at the time, and uh, she calls, and I pick up. I'm like, hey. It was about that tone of voice, and she, she said something like, uh, hey, I just wanted to make sure you weren't going to leave before, uh, before I got back. Nope, I'm not going to. Okay, great. Uh, I'll talk to you later, and that's the phone call. And I realize how much I'm hurrying and how much, like clearly my wife, she, she didn't come to me and was like, hey, you're a jerk on the phone, Gabe. Um, but very clearly, uh, this hurry made me ask myself, not just what am I doing, but who am I becoming? Who am I becoming when I hurry through things? The prophet Jeremiah lived 600 years ago, or excuse me, 2,600 years ago, longer, long, way longer. And he uh, warned the people of Jerusalem and the tribe of Judah uh, what was going to happen to them. He said, hey, if you follow God's way, good things are going to happen to you. You will live a life of peace and rest and real life. And if you don't follow God's way, bad things are going to happen to you. You will, you will face disorder and distraction and ultimately destruction. And we feel that throughout the biblical story. This happens again and again. The prophets say if you live God's way, good things will happen. If you don't live God's way, you are bringing destruction upon yourself. 
And so Jeremiah is warning the people of Jerusalem this. And in Jeremiah chapter 6, we see what Jeremiah says. This is chapter 6, verse 16. And he says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. There's this idea of a crossroads. There's multiple roads here. And look and ask, what paths have people been using for hundreds of years? What paths are proven and tried? Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Find rest for your souls. And, and he goes on to say uh, to the people of Israel that they would not walk in it. But he's laying out this idea of ask where the good way is and find rest for your souls. I think it behooves us to ask where and what is this good way? And as we take this text and lay it on our context of what I just laid out with hurry, Jeremiah doesn't say in in the text here like, and don't hurry through things so much. But I think as we take this text and lay it on our context, we can say that could be a clear application. Just as Jeremiah might have said, hey, uh, don't worship idols. You don't need me to stand up in front of you today and say, you know, you should probably not carve wooden figurines and bow down to them. I think we're all in agreement there. But as we lay it on our context, I think it's easy to say, oh, We should not hurry through life in the way that we do. The philosopher and teacher Dallas Willard, uh, who he was a USC professor, he was asked, How do I become the person that I want to become? And he paused and thought. And he said, You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. The, uh, the blogger and political writer Andrew Sullivan, who's also a Catholic, uh, he wrote on this topic a few years ago. And he said, the reason we live without faith, without faith in our society, is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. The white noise of secularism, this noise of consumerism and consumption and what I can get done and how I can produce and how I can get more done and move faster. It has removed the very stillness in which faith might endure. And if churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, it's not a pursuit of pleasure, but distraction, but hurry that's pervasive in our lives, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. The good way to walk is not a race. It's a way of going through life that finds rest. Before Jeremiah says these words, these aren't going to be on the screen, but he says a few other things to the people. If 
if you have the text in front of you, great. If not, I will read it to you. He says, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. If you lived in a society where everyone was greedy for more, you might face thousands of advertisements every day. You might see time and time again uh, what you can get, what you need, different things like that. Advertisers might continually be telling you, hey, your life is not complete until you have this thing. And, and when priests and prophets too are greedy for unjust gain, living in such a society might mean that you're in a place where uh, trust in institutions has eroded and people no longer trust government or religious institutions. If you could imagine such a society uh, that Jeremiah references if there's any parallels today. He goes on, he says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying peace, peace, where there is no peace. There may be an absence of real conflict, but there's not shalom, this biblical idea of complete peace. And you may, if you lived in a society like this, you could imagine like somebody uh, putting out on social media how great their lives are. And then when you sit down with them, you realize that their marriage or relationships are just crumbling into pieces. Peace, peace, where there is no peace. And Jeremiah goes on to say, were they ashamed when they committed a bomb? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. If you lived in such a society, you might hear about how people are desensitized to the spirit and where God is moving and that we distract ourselves and there's so much noise in our lives that we don't even know when we run roughshod over what God wants. The Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama, which is a fun name to say, says the speed of God's love is a walking pace. It's three miles per hour. Does your life feel like it's overflowing with God's love? And how much time do you have where you're able to walk at three miles per hour? Those two things are connected. This is an embodied way of living, a way of walking, uh, a way of asking who we're really trying to please and a way that we say, okay, how do we actually do this in our lives, right? Like, who has done this? Well, fortunately, someone has done this. And we often talk about Jesus as a person who is king and savior, and all of these are true. But sometimes we forget Jesus is also model for us. He's our rabbi, our teacher. He shows us how to live life. And when we read stories in the gospels, these are not just always fun stories or miraculous stories. They are also ways to orient and live our lives that give us peace In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's directly referencing Jeremiah 6. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This idea of a yoke, uh, we're probably most familiar with it with like yoking oxen together. And so when you would yoke oxen together, uh, then they could pull a plow and they would walk together at the same time pace, the same walk. Yoke in this uh, culture also meant rabbis and teachers would have a yoke. And, and what that meant is a way of understanding uh, the laws and a way of understanding what this rabbi thought was most important. And it was the same sort of idea because you were meant to walk after and embody the way of life of your rabbi. And taking on your rabbi's yoke then was saying, oh, how does my rabbi live? I'm going to live that way. So how did Jesus live? I'm going to highlight some things from the book of Mark. The book of Mark has 16 chapters. The last six chapters in the book of Mark are the last week of Jesus's life. Uh, we're not going to talk about those. It talks about Jesus in the temple, his death and resurrection. The first 10 chapters in the book of Mark, I'm going to fly through and highlight some things. So Jesus is 30 years old when he starts his ministry. And been waiting 30 years and we're like, okay, he's on the scene now. It's time to get this show going. Time to get the show on the road. Uh, what's going to happen? Jesus is starting his ministry. Where is he going to go first? To the wilderness for 40 days to be with his father. Okay, Jesus, you're going to start in the wilderness for 40 days. Great, you go do that. All right, let's get the ministry started now. So now we see Jesus in the book of Mark, Mark chapter one. He's calling a couple disciples and he goes like that first Saturday. He teaches in the synagogue and then he heals people that Saturday night. And, and Peter's like, this is fantastic. Sunday morning, Peter wakes up early and he's like, Jesus, what's next? Where's Jesus? And they're looking all over for Jesus. Where is Jesus? His ministry has just started. Oh, he's out in a desolate place. He got up early to be alone with his father. And then in Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus on Sabbath. And we're like, oh yeah, we got it. We, we understand Sabbath. And Jesus gives this famous line, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And this idea of so often uh, and what had become in that culture of all these rules around Sabbath and it was a heavy thing to carry. There was a lot of yoke to it. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Sabbath was made for you. Sabbath was made for us in this room. God gave it to us to rest and go at the right pace. In chapter 3 of Mark, Jesus, we see him call his disciples and take them to a remote place. He withdraws with them, trying to get away from the crowds. In chapter 4 of Mark, we see Jesus crossing a lake in a boat. And what's he doing? He's taking a nap. 
you get the rhythm of how fast he was living his life here. In chapter 5 of Mark, Jesus uh, lands in Capernaum, and one of the most important people in Capernaum, the synagogue ruler, says, Jesus, I need you right now. And Jesus is walking with him. And then a woman who's been bleeding touches Jesus' cloak, and Jesus stops and listens to her whole entire story while one of the most important people in town is waiting. Was Jesus in a hurry? No. In chapter 6, Jesus tells the disciples, let's come away by ourselves for a while. In chapter 7, Jesus leaves Israel, and we, we miss this line a lot, but he's literally trying to sneak into houses where no one will see him. In chapter 7 of Mark. In chapter 8 of Mark, he again takes the disciples to a desolate place. In chapter 9 of Mark, he takes the disciples, three of his closest friends, to a mountaintop away from everybody else. In chapter 10 of Mark, Jesus is walking to Jerusalem and he's in front of his disciples. And everyone is amazed that Jesus is leading the way, walking ahead of them, actually trying to get somewhere. But then a blind beggar calls his name as Jesus is walking to the final week of his life. And Jesus stops and provides space and meets that person where he is. Jesus, our rabbi, modeled a way of life that emphasized silence and space for others and solitude with his father. He modeled it again and again. And how often I go through life not following my rabbi, not emphasizing those things that he emphasized. Jesus says, when you walk this way, that is where you will find rest for your souls. In 1973, they did a study of seminary students. And they took a, a group of seminary students and they started them in one building. And uh, they, they give the seminary students, they split them into two groups. And one had a talk on the Good Samaritan. And one had a talk to give just on kind of vocation and work. So two groups, seminary students, got this study. And then what they did, they would send the seminary students to another building, and then they would say, now you're going to give your talk, okay? Either on the Good Samaritan or on vocation. The whole study was what happened between the two buildings. Between the two buildings, they had an actor who was, was it wasn't totally clear what was wrong, but it was a man lying on the ground moaning. He was clearly in distress and hurt. And so uh, they took those two groups of seminary students and they broke them into two more groups. And one group, they said, oh, hey, make it to the, go over to the other building. You've got a while. Just make your way over there as you have time. And the second group, they said, 
oh my goodness, we're late. Go hurry over to the other building. Uh, you've got to give your talk as soon as possible. As the group that had time passed this man on the ground, the majority of seminary students stopped and tried to help him. The group that was in a hurry, even if seminary students were giving a talk on the Good Samaritan, one in 10 stopped. One in 10. There were students who were literally giving a talk on the Good Samaritan, and there was a man lying on the ground, and they stepped over him on their way to give a talk. And I know, like, I hear that story, I'm like, that's really funny, those, those seminary students. And then I think about it, and I sit with it, and I think, oh my goodness, that is me. That is me when I am in a hurry. I will step over whoever I need to in order to get done what I need to get done. And how do I change that pace of life? Because I'm interested not just in what I can do, but in who I am becoming. I want to become a person who is more like my rabbi, a person like Jesus who, who has silence and solitude and gives space to others, especially a person lying on the ground. How do I do that? There are notepads on your chairs. And this is, this is the point of the service where there's now a test. No, that's a joke. There's not a test. But I'd love for you to pick up those notepads, and I have a few questions for us. Find a pen. And my first question is that Jesus models a life of silence. So often, I think that silence is helping us get in touch with our own selves again. Jeremiah warns against the greed of consumerism, against just getting more and more. And in that space, Jesus says, no, I show you what silence is. And so, as you think today and listen to God. Where in your life is God inviting you to experience more silence? I want you to write it down on your paper. You don't have to show anybody. You never have to show anybody. For me, it has to do a lot with my phone, which Studies say we touch over 2,500 times a day. Where is God inviting you to silence? Jeremiah spoke about people saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. And in response to this, Jesus modeled a life of giving space to others. Where is God inviting you to give space to others? It may be inviting someone over to a meal or making a phone call. Where is God inviting you to give space? 
And then finally, Jeremiah spoke of people who were so desensitized that they did not know where God was moving. Jesus lived a life of solitude where he connected with his Father. Where is God inviting you to cultivate solitude? And this might be waking up early in the morning. It might be five minutes at lunch. Some small thing that God is inviting you to tune in to him. Jeremiah wrote, said these words, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. My final charge to us is on your card you also stand at a crossroads. We all do. I know I do. Every day, stand at another crossroads. Am I going to walk in this good way? Am I going to cultivate places of silence and space and solitude for myself and my God and others? Or am I going to become someone who will step over someone who's hurting on my way to getting things done. So may you take this card, stick it somewhere obtrusive this week, a mirror, speedometer on your car, wherever. And may you step, may you walk in step with your rabbi in new ways this week with Jesus who invites you to a way of walking and living that gives rest to your souls. Let me pray. Father, we admit that we are hurried and desensitized and are looking most deeply for you. Rewire us, as, as Ryan prayed, resurrect us again today. By your Spirit, empower us to walk with Jesus. Empower us to find places in our lives where we can get more and more in step with him. We need you. We need your spirit. We need the way of Jesus. We are desperate for it. We give you again our lives. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.